So we are there um, at the University of Groningen. I think what um, is really uh, nice about the Lab Lab is that it works, um, collaborates with a lot of other researchers. So we are very much interested in intensive longitudinal data. So if we have mental disorders, we think it's very interesting to study those mental disorders in daily life, just to understand it better. Um, and that can be via qualitative or quantitative data. We're very open for all of that. And we want to know um, what can you do with which kind of data. So you can have passive measures, for example, in which you measure the heart rate or the other physiological things, or if people are sleeping or not, or where they are about. And what does that add to, well, self-reported measures, the emotions of people, how they feel about things. That's again very um, different. Is it complementary? Can the one be reduced to the other? In which cases can and can it not be? So these are the kind of methodological and sometimes a bit philosophical questions we have um, in the lab lab. So we're mainly focusing on working interdisciplinary with clinical researchers, also clinical practitioners, but also statisticians um, and computer scientists to see like uh, mathematicians, how can we best methodologically study mental disorders or parts of it at least? And what is a mental disorder? So we also have the philosophical touch to it. And that kind of multidisciplinary partnership working you're talking about there across different disciplines is that something that's been going on for a long time or is that new and what are the issues in getting these different groups to work together what are the kind of cultural barriers yeah so um well i i think it helps that i have a, a an interdisciplinary uh or multidisciplinary education myself so i did uh two bachelors and two masters, um, also at different universities. So that all helps in, in learning how to communicate with different fields. So I did and philosophy uh, and psychology, and then I did neuropsychology and then psychological methods. So part of it in Germany and the rest in Amsterdam. Um, and I think that helped me a lot to talk to a lot of people and to be kind of a bridge figure, because I do see that there are a lot of um, differences in languages. So a statistician can show you how the program um, works, but can maybe not translate if it's suitable for your data or what are the limits for this, for studying, for studying mental disorder. Because there you need a conceptual translation basically. And for that, um, it helps if you are conceptually trained yourself by, for example, philosophy or logic, that kind of thing. So I do see, um, that this works well, especially in PhD projects where people really get the chance to work with each other for like a couple of years. And then the group also learns to communicate with each other and learns each other's strengths. I see that as the big thing we need to do now in mental health research in order to get to the next level. It's that kind of partnership working and making people understand helping them discover that is required for their work to have impact. Yes, I, I, I really agree with that. So we have, for example, now I'm part of a consortium, uh, which Brenda Pennings in Amsterdam is the main, uh, the core applicant, that is called Stress in Action. And that's also about mental health. And we really work there with, for 10 years, from January on, we're going to work with a lot of different universities in the Netherlands 
really from computational artificial intelligence, um, statistics. And that's only the methods part, right? So it's very uh, intensive already. And then you have, of course, all the experts in passive measures, uh, physiology, um, neurobiology, etc. And then you have the clinical researchers. So indeed, these these big, and then and then you are working together. These big consortia that are working together for ten years. I think that is crucial um, to really learn from each other and understand what is what is needed. And also to understand what a mental disorder is and how you can and cannot study it. But I do think that um, it is all getting more complex, right? Um, but we also have to see the limits um, of all these things. I mean, it does not mean that um, more complex measures are always better or more complex statistics is the solution or more is more, so to speak. I do think that we have to try it all out and study it, but also be honest in this whole process, um, what, what works and what doesn't work and how things work, basically. So I think that's also an important part um, of my work to not only see say like, hey, we made this new shiny model or we made this new shiny theory about mental disorders, or but also really talk about um, the limits like this it can and cannot do. I'm quoting from your website. It said your work focuses on understanding and developing intensive longitudinal modeling approaches for clinical practice. Now that sounded really interesting to me, but I don't really understand what it means. Can you kind of explain to me what that means in practice? Yes. So in practice, that means that I'm very much interested um, in finding changes in uh, mental health. So I would really like to be able to see, like many other researchers, um, when people are feeling better or worse. And I hope that the models we are developing at the moment, that they can contribute to this in actually clinical practice so that people can measure themselves over time and that we see not only when they are feeling better or worse, um, maybe even together with them, maybe via also qualitative information, not just quantitative, but that we also see the why around it. So I'm very much interested also not only in um, the models that are out there and what they can and cannot do for clinical practice, but also the way of measuring the environment, for example, because the why is often not just from the head and from the brain. It's also just the, the social support you get, the, the money you have, the stress factors you have at that moment. And those things um, I would like to make insightful for, um, well, practitioners, but also the clients themselves. Let's say I've got bipolar disorder yeah. and I'm, and I'm self-managing my condition and I'm worried about having a, a an episode of mania. What are you measuring? So it sounds like you're measuring a lot more than just me sitting down with my psychiatrist and filling in a kind of checklist of how manic I'm feeling. Um, what sorts of things would we be thinking of? Wearable devices or apps that track my mood or what, what are we measuring? Yes, great, great question. So it would be um, foremost apps to track your mood. So we are using, for example, Empath. And in that sense, we can ask all kinds of questions that we think are relevant or are an indication that people are going to get mania or out of their mania or into a depression. Um, so we can directly ask it or we can ask, are you very excited? Maybe like more, more indirectly. And we have to make sure that 
there are not too many questions. So there will be questions just to tracking the mania part, if that's what uh, what's relevant at that moment. And there will be questions that are trying to get more the environmental part, like who are you with? And then some passive measures that could be wearables, um, but we don't know yet how well they work. That is something we have to see. They could track your arousal state, for example, ideally in the future, and then very well. Uh, or the GPS, maybe um, you have passive measures that can be very informative about your mental state. Maybe you get mania, uh, mania symptoms when you are um, going about a lot. So you're not staying at one place at all, or you're not even sleeping at the same house. And then that could be already an indication. And maybe that is already um, and making clear what the cause is uh, and also an indication for yourself as a patient, like, okay, when I'm doing that, then probably I'm not doing that well anymore. So that is indeed what we are trying to have. So to have these measures um, where we think already, and that's together with the patient and the clinician, like these will be important measures to understand what you have and how you can get better. And then with the models, we hope to see if indeed you can explain something, if you have the variance explained basically. So what you would do with any correlational or regression model, that is what we hope. And then those models, they can become uh, very complex if they have to deal with nonlinearity or with change, that kind of things over time. And my question is how complex do we have to make them in order to still give insightful information, but without making untransparent what is happening and why something is predicting um, your mood well. I would like to have it still very transparent. Who owns that data? Who's in control of that data? Because for me, the, the key question, that, that all sounds really exciting. And I know lots of, you know, data scientists or people that are really into digital or, you know, EMA sort of assessment yes. get really excited. And I sometimes see them getting excited and getting away from the kind of clinical usefulness yes. of this. Who's who's going to be in control? I'm hoping you're going to say that the, the the patient, the service user, is the person who owns everything. But that's not the case, is it? Because all this data is up there on the cloud and in Facebook or Google. Or that's a big issue. So in the empath, the the patient has the data itself, and the and he can give the data to the practitioner and the researcher. But the patient is then, um, in that sense, in control. And also we see from our research at UMCG, so uh, from other research that work there, that ha what has been really important is that you discuss the data. You don't just give it like that to the patient, but that you discuss it with the patient, together with the patient. So the patient doesn't see it on its own, but it's always in um, it's in a communication with either the researcher or the practitioner or both. Um, so that is like, a new, we really think uh, collaborative working is very important in making sense of the data. What we also have seen is that the complex modeling, so sometimes we were doing more like network modeling, that um, network modeling is not always very transparent in what it actually shows. So you do see a lot of lines between variables. And, and which makes you think that you maybe see a causal structure between your symptoms or your mood and context. Um, but that's often, so that's what I've been also working on. That's often uh, not the case because you cannot interpret those networks causally. Uh, in those cases, it's sometimes more useful to actually look at simpler lines. So graph lines where you can just see it may be a bit smoothed. So you can see like, oh, 
this line went up and this line went down. So my mood went up, but my contacts were down, something like that. How can that be? And that you then discuss it from there and that you have some qualitative, uh, for example, qualitative information at the outliers. Why were you super happy here? Why were you super down there? We see that practitioners do this a lot um, with their patients if they look at data, that they especially look at outliers and then want to have some qualitative information from the patient that the patient then wrote down in the EMA, for example. Like this was a highlight because, well, a problem got solved. I finally have um, a house to live in, which was a big stressor, something like that. And that is then something you can discuss. Uh, or I got into a fight and therefore this and this is happening and I'm not sure what to do now. And that can be a good starting point. So I'm starting um, at the moment, I think, uh, Methodologists should be humble in the sense that we can think about how we should measure things, but we cannot all of the sudden show people uh, all the causal structures like this is why you have your um, problems and this is how you're going to solve it. I don't think that at this moment um, we can really say that. It can just be a good starting point for a practitioner and patient to talk about well, how they experience the, their emotions and problems in daily life and to give some small insights here and there. And therefore, not always very complex techniques need to be used, but they can be useful. But simpler is often a better starting point. That is what I'm seeing at the moment in my work. It relates a lot to my own experience of having diabetes. I I'm, I'm scan my blood glucose every you know, hour to get a reading on my phone. And then I can see how my blood sugar is doing. And I can see the impact of exercise or eating food or taking insulin. And I understand the kind of the quantitative gathering of that data and sitting down with a health professional to look at it together. And um, I say, well, maybe I need to take slightly less insulin at lunchtime because I'm having low blood sugar at two o'clock very regularly. Um, what I'm struggling with is how you bring in the kind of qualitative stuff, how that is captured in such a way that it's useful, because the things that impact on our mental health and our stress, first of all, we don't even know they're happening often until yeah. months later. Um, you know, I know I'm worried, but I don't know what I'm worried about. That's quite a common <laughs> feeling. I wonder how that's going to be captured and, yeah, overlaid onto the quantitative data well one thing is that we ask what was the most positive event or negative event and that already gives a bit of indication so it's then you have to reflect less but just name like oh yeah that was this in the past three hours the most positive was this and it wasn't super positive or it was very positive or the most unpleasant was this so that already gives a bit of insight but i think that's indeed a good question also something we have to play around with um, at the moment we are very much asking uh uh, qualitative information how was your social interaction what did you discuss what was it about and and then the quantitative part is was it pleasant and that we get more insight into um, measuring that so I think the overlaying is sometimes necessary because the quantitative doesn't measure everything if we just have the quantitative part you don't know who you are interacting with and who might be actually more part of your social support network than you think um, so in that sense, I think that can be um, really contributing. However, it's definitely not the case that um, you can do the qualitative part without the quantitative part, because people can talk about um, a fish and then we're thinking, well, 
not so interesting, but maybe this was a very negative experience actually. So then you need the qualitative part because you need to know with whom this was and this remember that there was a fish story and then the patient can tell, oh yeah, that was actually very negative as you see, although you wouldn't have guessed because he didn't like my fish at all. And I think fish is super important. Uh, and this was uh, Rick and Rick, I was always fighting with me and actually doesn't respect me. And that can be a good conversation starter. Mm-hmm. So the qualitative is just because we are lacking often with the quantitative part. We are missing out too much because we cannot structure everything yet. If people have got 15 minutes to dip into your work, where would they, where should they start? What would you suggest? The Back to Basics paper is about conceptualization and it shows also for mental health research, but for any research really in psychology and, and of course beyond, that it is important that when you want to study something, the most important thing that's often forgotten is the validity, the conceptualization, that it's clear what you're measuring, that we don't have to make everything overly complex, but that's already complex enough to really know what you are measuring. So if you're interested in friendship, how can you best ask about friendship? If you're interested in fatigue or depression, how should you define depression? Because no model probably can save you if the concept doesn't make sense or you're not measuring what you're supposed to measure, then you might get reliable things out of, I mean, you can replicate it all the time, but it still might not be meaningful at all when it's not measuring what's supposed to measure. And I think therefore it's important that measurement is becoming more sexy in research and that um, that will be more of a focus during PhDs Um, and doing whole trajectories of research that we're really trying to see, okay, what is the best question to study fatigue or the best questions? Or what is the best measure to to study arousal? How can we do that? Or what is essential to study social interactions and what kind of measures are needed and what is not needed? And not to dive immediately into, oh, we did these measures. Now we're going to see how they all relate to each other. Let's do a lot of artificial intelligence, machine learning and network models on it and see what comes out of it. I think it's more fruitful to stay with a simple analysis and better valid measures. And that is something we have um, written down in this back to basics paper. Mm -hmm.